Paul ends there with some beautiful words as he's, as he's seeking for language. He's, he's trying to find what words can he express from this moment of understanding just how awesome and how good and, and how great God is in his life. And he's just so overwhelmed by, by the thought of what this can mean, not just for him, but, but for the entire church, but then also for the people that he's been touring around trying to reach and, and explain this to, that, that he's just so overwhelmed that he, he utters this prayer we find at the end of chapter 3. And as we think about just how awesome that is, how wide and deep and great the expanse of God's love is for us, I, I hope for us today, church, it makes us think and, and remember that God is good. Amen? He is good. He is so good to us in the week that's past, and we know he'll be good for us in the days ahead. I'm glad to see you here with us on this long weekend. As we continue to work through the book of Ephesians, we're almost halfway through. At the end of today, we'll be halfway through this important book, which we're referring to as a, as a playbook for the church. And, and like any playbook or like any manual or instruction manual you may come across, if you're going to put it into practice, it requires a couple of things. It requires a personal investment of time and effort and energy, but then some repetition as we learn to grow and understand what these different principles mean. And this isn't, this isn't a new concept. It shows up in all aspects of, of our lives. For example, I was thinking this week, if you want to learn a new language, you, you would put the sort of the same principles to work, wouldn't you? Where, for example, if you want to learn the language of French, you would uh, maybe take a French class and get some instruction on what it means and how to speak French. You, you might download the Babbel app on your phone or your computer, which helps you to learn the languages. Some people might go as far as to do the immersive experience, where they perhaps spend a few months in Quebec, or better yet, over in like Paris for, for a while, to immerse themselves in the culture to learn the language. We see this in uh, trades, for example. People will trade, will trade uh, jobs three, four times, maybe even more over a lifetime. And when these new opportunities come up, maybe if you're going from uh, business world into the trades world, you need to retrain. And so, again, you will go perhaps get a new degree. You'll go to a new training course. You might spend some time in an apprenticeship to learn a new trade. Uh, if you want to get fit, you're going to go to the gym. You're going to hire a trainer and maybe read some books, some articles, some journals on how to eat well to go along with the training you're doing. That personal investment. Uh, Nadine, for example, my wife Nadine, she's been wanting to uh, run a marathon eventually is one of her goals. And so she's gradually been working her way up. Like, for example, today, this morning, she's at a 15-kilometer race, trail race that she's doing this morning that she's been working her way towards for, for many, many months now. Now, she didn't just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to run 15K today. One, she probably couldn't have done it. Two, if she had tried to, because she's very stubborn and determined, so she may actually have made the 15K. But she would have hurt herself in the process of doing so because she hadn't trained and prepared herself for that. She made the decision, the personal investment. She joined a running club at, runners world, at the running room and, and got up early mornings to go time and time again and practice and grow in her ability with these things. So can we agree that this is a commonly accepted principle? That if we want to learn, if we want to grow, if we want to achieve something in a new area of our lives, that we need to make a personal investment. We need to make a commitment. Can we agree with that? Yeah, that's how life works, right? I have found two potential exceptions, however. So, I don't know if this will totally work out, but two potential exceptions. Number one is I did learn that there was a race, a running race, however, that there wasn't a lot of training for. It happened back a couple of days ago on May 3rd down in Bourne, Texas. And it was titled, The Half Kilometer Race for Underachievers. So, so this did actually happen on May 3rd. It sold out very quickly. 
And yes, half a kilometer, 500 meters, five American football fields, four and a bit Canadian football fields. Now that's not too far, but if you felt that was even too far for you to run, if you paid an extra $25 for your entry fee, they got a 1960s Volkswagen bus that they refinished that will drive you from the starting line to the finish line. <laughs> if you really don't feel you could run five football fields. Now, if you chose to, to tackle this challenge, they wanted to give you some encouragement. So the training recommendations they had were sitting on the couch and eating tacos is how you train for this. And to give you some, some oomph to finish the race, at the halfway point, yes, 250 meters, which you can, basically it's a long par three, 250 meters, they have a hydration stand, which is needed for some, but they had stocked it with coffee and donuts, if you wanted to stop and enjoy that. And so at the end, you would get a medal, such as this one, and a t-shirt to celebrate the victory. T-shirts, however, apparently were only available in extra large and double extra large for sizes apparently, I'm not sure why, but, uh, but that's what they had available. So maybe, maybe this is an exception to the rule, that we need personal investment and commitment over time and if we're going to achieve something. I came across a second potential one, a little one, a little more challenging, that if we are going to learn to grow in something, if we're going to learn to succeed and have great maturity, investment, and, and achievement in certain areas, that another area that perhaps people think there's an exception is within the church. Now, I came across a survey the other day where it asked this question. Can you be a good Christian and not be part of a church? It's a valid question. And of the people that they surveyed, now they surveyed committed Christians, people who, who kind of ticked yes to the boxes ahead of time that would have them fall into the category of, yes, they believe in the, in the, resur in the uh, died and resurrected Son of Jesus Christ for salvation. People who ticked that box were then asked this question, and 81% of them said yes. 81% said yes, I can be a good, faithful Christian and not be part of a church. Now, it's no secret that church attendance and, and participation has been declining over the decades. It wasn't that long ago, a, a few decades ago, maybe two or three generations ago, there are some people perhaps in this sanctuary today who remember a time when regular church participation was defined as 52 weeks a year. The only time you missed was with serious illness or sicknesses or serious life situations was the only time you missed. Now, we know that's declined over the past few generations and to the point now where full-time church membership, it, those who attend 52 weeks a year, more often than not, is down to about 4% of people who attend most North American churches. And average, average consistent church attendance nowadays is around 1.6 times per month. So less, less than twice per month is what's considered average of committed Christ followers in today's culture. Now my goal in bringing this up is not to, not to be alarmist. I'm not trying to bring this up so that we can spend the next 30 minutes kind of beating up on the modern day church. That's not my point. Because there are many good things that are still happening within the church today. People are still getting saved. We are still seeing people baptized in droves. We are still seeing people grow in the maturity of their faith. We are still seeing people being sent out to the farthest reaches of the world as missionaries. And we are seeing the kingdom increase still in today's world. And don't forget, Jesus promised 2,000 years ago when he, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And I do see that still happening today. And I still believe that that is truth, that Jesus promised that the church will succeed. And I still believe that's truth. There are some challenges. It looks a bit different today than it did in the past. But my point is not to be alarmist or to beat up on the modern day church. Rather, my point today 
is to join Paul in what he says in the book of Ephesians. It's to join him in particular, what he says in Ephesians 3, to offer up a high value of God's church. To offer up to you and help you understand the high value of God's design, why the church exists in the first place. And the impact and difference it makes not only in our lives, but in the lives of the world around us. And so building upon what we've looked at in the past couple of weeks here, the passage we reviewed in in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to start looking this week at at another aspect of what Paul's been revealing. Because he's been revealing to us gradually over the last few weeks that he does not believe there is such a thing as a mature believer apart from participation in the body of Christ. That's something that Paul will state. Actually, next week, he'll pretty much explicitly say that next week. And he's been building up to that where he does not believe there is anything along the lines of a mature believer in Christ who is not part of a participation in the body of Christ. Last week, as we were talking about what the church is and in God's grace, we, we began by talking about how, how God has saved people individually, where by grace, we've been saved through faith. And then how we were then reconciled to one another gathered together into God's family as one body by the grace of God. With Jesus Christ as the head, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, if we want to use some some building architectural terms that, that Paul uses, is that cornerstone upon which all other stones are built. That cornerstone, that perfect initial stone that is placed upon which all others are built and aligned and upon which all others depend. And so that everybody who has been saved individually by grace through faith has been joined together into the body of Christ and stone by stone is being constructed into a holy temple. Is what he talked about last week. Now to the audience that Paul was talking to, this idea of being associated with a temple was extremely familiar for them. Because whether you were a Jew or Gentile, everybody in that day and culture was associated with one temple or another. That was just the reality of part of their lives. And they knew what it meant to be part of a temple. They knew that a temple was the place where your God lived. Whatever God that was that they were choosing to worship, they believed that was where their God lived. That was the place they would go to to worship their God in his presence. That was where you would go to meet with the priest and maybe some other fellow adherents to learn and grow in relationship with one another. And so which temple and region you belong to had a source of social identity to go along with it. At times, it even had a sense of national pride of which temple and which religion you associated with. And at times, it was even an exclusive membership to be part of certain ones. And so when Paul steps onto the scene and starts preaching that Jesus Christ died for all people, and because of that one sacrifice, that one time for all people, now everybody had equal access, and everybody was equal before God. That was good news for the Gentiles, who previously had been excluded. Remember, he said how they were far, but the far had been brought near. It was good news for the Gentiles, but it was troubling for some others. It was troubling in particular for the Jews, because it meant that they no longer had this exclusivity, this exclusive access to God, as they had in the past. It was a bit of a violation to their nationalistic pride and identity. It had social, national, personal implications of what Paul was declaring to all the people, that everybody now had equal access to God, that everybody now was equal before God. Now, some places of worship, if you change the brand of coffee, they'll revolt against you. Imagine the impact of this. 
news coming upon your place of worship. But Paul summarizes this whole message when he says in, in the passage we're looking at today, he says, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together in, with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promises of Jesus Christ. In verse 6 here, he uses the word together three times to emphasize this message that God has passed on to him and he is now passing on. This message of equality. This message of mutuality of all people, of all nations, that when we come together in the church of Jesus Christ, all people are equal before God. All people have equal access to God. All people are part of one body. This is an important message for us to understand today. But it was also a troubling message for the people of that day. Some to the point where in Acts 21, we read that there was a Jewish revolt against what Paul was teaching. And because of this revolt against these teachings, against this message, he was thrown in prison. And in prison is where Paul is. And those were the events that recently happened as he is writing the words of this letter to the church in Ephesians. And because of this message and because of these events that have just happened in his life, we see that in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he begins by saying, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He says, For this reason, for the reasons I just discussed, for the reasons that all are together in the church by God's grace, for this reason, including you Gentiles to whom I'm writing, all of you are together, and because of that message, I'm a prisoner. And then he abruptly stops. If, if you're looking at your Bible, you see it in there, there's probably a little dash. Because he abruptly stops at the end of verse 1. It's, he, he stops before he finishes his thought. He introduces the thought, but he never quite gets there. And maybe you have friends like that who they're explaining the story to. Is, oh, look, a bird. <laughs> they get a little distracted and they go over here for a bit. And then they eventually return back to the story they initially did. He's going to get back to his story. But we've got to wait till the end for that. Because he gets a little distracted for a moment. And he suddenly feels this need to explain the calling, to explain the credentials by which he has that makes him in a position where he can speak on behalf of God. He wants to put some merit behind who he is and this message he's bringing because it's a pretty significant story. It's a pretty life-changing, society-changing message he has. Now, a lot of people in Ephesus were familiar with him because he had ministered to them and he had planted that church and he had sort of discipled them for about three years before he left. But he'd been gone for a while. So there were some new converts who didn't, know, excuse me, who didn't know him at that time personally. And so he says to them in verse 2, he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. Now we discussed in week one what this mystery was. This mystery that it's not something that is completely unknowable and beyond our ability to know. Simply the word mystery here refers to the idea that it just had not yet been revealed. And this mystery was that God had planned from the beginning of time to provide salvation for all people through Jesus Christ. Now, there were prophecies about this in the Old Testament. There were promises about this in the Old Testament. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we find the very first promise that this would one day come to fruition. But it couldn't because Jesus Christ hadn't arrived on the scene yet. But now, now that he had... God was revealing this truth to Paul and to other apostles who were being sent out to reveal it to the nations. Now for Paul, this mystery became known to him in a very dramatic fashion. 
it became known to him, and we can read about this in Acts chapter 9, where through a very powerful encounter with Jesus Christ, this powerful personal encounter with Jesus Christ, <clears throat> he was converted from being the great persecutor of the church to becoming a great champion of the church. He was the one of which, in just a few verses later after Acts chapter 9, you'll see that God says that this is going to be the guy. He's the one who is my chosen instrument to take this news to the Gentiles. This is the guy I'm choosing to go out and to plant and to grow this church that I have had planned from the beginning of time. Now this encounter that Paul had with Jesus not only explains how he experienced God's grace in his own life. Grace, which you remember from last week we talked about how is God's blessing or favor he extends to us that we don't deserve, that we don't earn, and yet he still chooses to extend it to us. So beginning in Acts chapter 9, we not only see how Paul personally experienced God's grace, but also how it completely transformed his life, how it completely flipped his life upside down. But that's not all that it did. You see, that's often what we think about grace, and that's what we've commonly been taught about grace, is that grace is God's gift of forgiveness, and it's his gift of salvation. End of story. Now, that's all true. That's true. Paul covered that in, in, in chapter 2. But today, he's taking it a step further. Today, he's going a step further to say, yes, God's gift of grace is about forgiveness. It is about the fact that we are saved through God's grace, by God's grace through faith. That's true and all. But also Paul now says here that he was made an administrator. He was made a steward of God's grace. That means that when Paul experienced the grace of God, not only did it save him and transform him, it also enlisted him into a ministry. It came with a responsibility. And knowing God's plan was for all people, for all nations, for they themselves to experience God's goodness. For they themselves to have a personal encounter with the grace of God. He knew he had a responsibility. And so he says this in verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. You see, grace not only saved Paul, it also enlisted him into God's mission to reach the world. It was another often missed aspect of what grace is. Now, clearly Paul's mission was unique. Clearly his calling was specific to who he was. Not many here, if any here, are going to be called to go plant churches around the world. Very few of us here are going to sit down and spend hours and hours and days and days writing theological discourses that are going to change the world. But the Ephesians to which Paul was writing, they had experienced the same grace of God. So to each of us who sits here. As Paul said earlier, that same power that reached down and raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that exists within each and every single one of us. So too, the same grace that saved, transformed, and enlisted Paul is the same grace that each of us has experienced here as well. And so as Paul has been revealing, God's grace saves us individually, connects us corporately. That was last week. But now we're seeing how God's grace also enlists us. God's grace gives us a mission. God's grace gives us a responsibility. Now that's an unfamiliar way to understand God's grace. Now one way we can perhaps look at this to, to grasp the concept a little bit better 
is to look at the wisdom and the wise words of Uncle Ben. Not, not the guy who makes the rice. That's a different Uncle Ben. But the Uncle Ben, perhaps you might remember from the movie Spider-Man. <laughs> you remember Spider-Man movies? Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. He looks like this guy in the original one. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, let me catch you up in 10 seconds here. High school student Peter Parker is bit by a radioactive spider.